I thought I'd take a few minutes at the uh, beginning of this period to uh, go back and touch on some of the things that we've covered during the week. Not so much in recapitulation, but uh, somewhat in correction or clarification uh, on different things. One is that in the, uh, and, and different ones have helped me in, in just discussion on these things. One is that we spoke in the very first lesson regarding the idolatry of Tira and his family before they migrated from Ur and the verse generally given by several of the writers on this subject in Joshua 24 2 uh, even since coming to the school here I, I think you may have felt that my presentation on that subject was a little timid and I intended that it should be I, I wasn't so sure that Tira was a what we call a diet in the wool idol worshiper and looking at that Joshua 24-2 where Joshua sort of look at that entire chapter Joshua is recounting quite a bit of the history of Israel and he said your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time even Terah the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor or Nahor and they served other gods uh, I think it's very probable and I, I lean a little strongly now to the opinion that, that the they in that final sentence and they served other gods refers to the inhabitants of that land as opposed to Terah and his family so that this would sort of qualify Terah, Nahor, Haran, Abram, Sarah and the others as sort of living in a city of idolatry but still doing their best to uh, faithfully serve their God and therefore when the call came to Abraham to get up and leave uh, he was very willing to do so and that, that the family itself was not steeped in idolatry secondly there was a question asked to me and I think it was in the uh, uh, comments we had on circumcision uh, as to how the Jews under the law of Moses what specific rights there may have been if any in entering the covenant and I told you at that time this was I think in our afternoon question period that uh, Brother Williams had something to say and I have a copy of that here on page 387 of the world's redemption and uh, I thought I would read that to you all the children of Israel were under the Mosaic covenant but they were not all under the Abrahamic for the reason that the first was a matter of law only imposed unconditionally upon those born under it naturally while the second was one of the conditions predicated upon the one faith reaching beyond this life and dependent upon being born again and becoming new creatures mentally morally and relatively the subjects of this everlasting covenant were therefore under the two covenants, the one which was a schoolmaster to lead to the other, and that one which the schoolmaster led to. The former has Moses for its head, the latter has Christ. There was no special ceremony, this is at least his opinion, there was no special ceremony under the Mosaic covenant attending 
the passing of a person from responsibility to the law only to that of the Abrahamic covenant. The former brought its subjects nigh to God as compared with the other nations who were far off, Ephesians 2.13, and they were thereby constituted his people and were commanded to worship him, offering prayers and singing praises for his marvelous works. There's some more on that on, on page 388. Uh, I'm not so sure that I totally agree with, with what Brother Williams has written on that when he says there was no special ceremony based on the uh, writing of Psalms 50 and 5 and other uh, related verses where he says, Gather my uh, saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, I would suggest that there was a sacrifice of some specificity that engaged that person passing from the Mosaic into the Abrahamic, that, that he reached a stage in his life where he says, uh, by the offering of this sacrifice, it is my uh, wish, and I'm expressing my faith in those things that God has spoken, that I now uh, be related uh, to that superior covenant which hath a hope of life, as opposed to this temporal uh, covenant which has no hope. The third clarification uh, was on something we were speaking on yesterday, which had to do, actually it's two sort of contingent subjects there, one on the age of Isaac at his offering, and the uh, two on the weaning of Isaac. speaks of Sarah dying at age 127, Isaac would be 37. The record of his mother's death follows immediately after that of Isaac's offering, or the offering of Isaac by Abraham, a fact which suggests, if nothing more, that he was in his 30s when he climbed the hill of sacrifice, just as was the great antitype. Should this be correct, Abraham would have to deal not with a mere youth, but with a grown man. It seems, therefore, that Isaac must have known what this visit to Moriah involved and had consented to be sacrificed according to the Lord's appointment so that his father's faith expressed in the words, I and the lad will go yonder to worship and we, plural, will come again to you, must also have been that of his son Isaac, who, assured of the promises, realized that cutting off would necessitate resurrection in view of the divine pronouncement that in Isaac shall I see be called. Now speaking of the weaning of Isaac, it also touches on the subject of the affliction or persecuting of uh, the free by the bond. It says the affliction began when Isaac, the seed, was weaned. It is said to have been a common practice in Palestine from time immemorial to the present day for a favorite male child not to be weaned till the age of five years because of the belief that he will grow stronger. 
a three-year period is on record around B.C. 150. And again, that goes back to the second book of Maccabees, 727. Uh, and we're not suggesting this as divine evidence, uh, but as a uh, related reference in the Apocrypha, if you wanted to, and we did look at that verse yesterday where it spoke of, of the three years. Uh, and in the days of Abraham, when lives were very much longer, the period would doubtless be extended. He's suggesting here, this writer, that uh, a five-year period uh, was possible and possibly even longer. He says, this may have been the case with Isaac. At all events, the beginning of the affliction is clearly marked by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4:29. What was the question? That's times and seasons. Uh, brother uh, Brother Kerwin, I, I don't know whether he... I have an idea from sitting in on Brother Kerwin's class that uh, he didn't relate to uh, a lot of specific items, say, as such from this book, but I, I know he relies very... Uh, or agrees with many of the comments in here, particularly as regards to dates. And uh, I think it's one of the uh, better books that we can find. It's very uh, detailed, uh, particularly in, in, in involving the calculation of time and, and eclipses and, and minute time coming out to fractions of days and all, and, and somebody calculating time. And he does in the case of Isaac here with his age, and, and this, it gives you the probably the month in the, in the year that this sacrifice most likely was made. Times and seasons. That was page 222 to 26, somewhere along there, somebody's jotting those notes down and has a copy of that book. That's by Brother W.H. Carter. Another point that has, has come up in our discussion uh, is the use of the word uh, everlasting covenant that we're talking about, although it's not officially a part of, a, of the title of our subject, but in Genesis 17, 8, uh, God did promise to give the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Uh, it was an idea that was, uh, as, as with many of us, I think we have ideas that, that when they are sort of instilled in us at a, at a young age, sometimes we, we are... Uh, reluctant to turn loose of them, and in many cases this is good. Uh, but I'm convinced, and I, I don't, don't want to say everybody just adopt this because I do, but there's, I don't think there's any word in the Bible that means everlasting in the sense of time without measurement from one side to, to time without the other. I do believe that God is described that way. He is described as from everlasting to everlasting. It's from unmeasurable infinity on the one side to unmeasurable infinity on the other side. If we're thinking of the person of deity, it's unmeasurable. We cannot comprehend or measure. Uh, but there is no word or original word given in the Bible, and the word everlasting is used in several ways in the Bible. In Genesis 49, 26, there's a passage there speaking of the everlasting hills, and I believe it's speaking of the buried territory that's going to be upset by an earthquake 
So they can't be everlasting. They're going to last for the age. That's what everlasting normally means. So those hills, whenever they were fashioned, even if it was 4004 B.C. or some number of years prior, last from the time of their formation until the time of their leveling. And in Exodus 40.15, perhaps the most damning evidence, is that the Aaronic or Levitic priesthood is spoken of as the everlasting priesthood. Now that priesthood is already deceased. So to call it everlasting, as the scriptures do, says one thing. You've got to look carefully at the word everlasting, and it means for the age. So the Aaronic priesthood was set up uh, at a certain time, and some uh, 1,600 years later, it had served its purpose, and the lasting or age of that priesthood was merely 1,600 years. It's even measurable. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Well, how long is the kingdom going to last? Is it going to be infinity off of the measuring device? Millions, billions, trillions of eons? We're told in Revelation there will be a millennial reign of Christ, 1,000 years, at the end of which the kingdom will be surrendered or turned, up, turned over to God, and it is a relative assumption that there will be no more governing or operational effect of that kingdom. In Revelation 14.6, we have mention of the everlasting gospel. And the everlasting gospel may be, again, one of the uh, areas where we have difference of opinion. But uh, at longest, if, if it even goes into the millennium, at longest its preaching will be 1,000 years. But uh, I believe Dr. Thomas uh, will t suggest that it lasts for 40 years. So the everlasting or age-lasting gospel is a period of proclamation of a message that even though it's called everlasting, lasts for an age. People are punished with everlasting destruction uh, and so forth. The, so we need to, that is, I think there's a point there that we might study on and we're not trying to say that when we get eternal life that it's going to run out on us sometime and we're going to convert back to mortality or something because eternal life means that once we get it, if it's in the year 2000 A.D. or what have you, it's going to continue on and on and on because there is a consubstantiality of nature uh, with God that he grants to his creatures uh, so that they might live on and on. But that, even that has a starting point and it's, it's not an infinity type thing where you can't measure either end of it. Uh, somebody asked me the question in Genesis 13:17. I don't have too good an answer either about Abraham his reaction when God uh, told him to arise and walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it in other words was there a great traversing or walking by Abram uh, through this land. In fact, when I came to this in, in the uh, notes that I've been working on, I wasn't even able, able to tell you where he was. He was either at Bethel or at Hebron. The next, I, I still favor that he was at Bethel because the next verse says, Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron. So I feel that he was in Bethel first. And you recall I read you an article out of... Uh, uh, the Ezekiel uh, temple 
that suggested Brother Sully felt that he was uh, in Hebron when this promise was given and, and at a more advantageous uh, sight level so that he could look northward, eastward, southward, westward, all around. But nothing is said about walking through the land. Did he go 100 miles north or 30 or 40 miles east and west and sort of canvas all of this territory that he was to possess? Uh, all I can give you is an opinion that uh, I, I don't think he did at that time. Uh, it has been said, and it's not just my opinion, by others, that in the course of Abraham's life, he covered much of the land of Canaan, and very shortly after this, he covered a good bit of it uh, in his pursuit of the uh, eastern kings uh, under the leadership of Keterleomer. So he uh, proceeded to the northern part, so he went through a whole uh, bit of the territory. Uh, the route, again, if, if you recall, uh, or you've got the drawing of the map there in your notes, the route of how Abraham came into the land where he first touched down, if you will, at Shechem is not totally established, whether he came down from Haran on the eastern side of the, say, Sea of Galilee or the Jordan Valley area there, and then came into Shechem uh, from east to west, or whether he may have come over and come straight down. Uh, and at that time had had some knowledge. Of course, this would have been prior to this Genesis 13:17. It's rather strange. We've talked two or three times about the uh, some of the profane commentators on this matter. Uh, I guess some that would discredit the uh, at least Abram and his faith. I don't know that they're they're attempting to discredit the whole account as, as being uninspired or anything, but they. In reading this Genesis 13, 17, and 18, they say that God told him in verse 17 to arise and walk through the land, and that as a evidence of his lack of faith in what God has said, in verse 18, he picks up and goes the other way. Uh, I don't think that's at all correct, but it, it shows you how, again, how the minds of some people uh, try to solve these uh, problems as they, as they arise. He, he's told Abraham, I will give you this land, and so instead he goes down uh, south of there uh, to Hebron and sort of rejects what God has said according to this theory, which of course I don't think any of us would be very ready to accept. Also, before we pick, pick back up at Genesis 25 and our concluding remarks in this uh, series of uh, study, we mentioned, I think it was Sunday, in outlining what we had hoped to cover, that we had a certain concern of the minimizing our, our deprecation, our downgrading of the effect in the Christadelphian body of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, as far as this group goes, uh, not that we're able to get vibrations exactly, but I think we're, we're talking, I spent very early in our, in our class that we're talking to, to people here who are knowledgeable people and who uh, regard these Abrahamic promises as uh, most important. And uh, 
again, I'm not trying to say this just to, to uh, flatter anybody, uh, it, it, but the response uh, in our discussions and things like this, uh, I think this is what consolidates and, and uh, affirms our faith. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm going to believe the Abrahamic promises just because you, you say I believe them too. Our real basis of conviction is that God has spoken, that they have been confirmed uh, throughout the writings of the prophets and Old New Testament just copiously, uh, from cover to cover practically. And uh, so there's no real reason uh, to reject them. But it is very sad that in an effort, whatever that effort may be, uh, to create some other illusion or position that uh, brethren of whatever conviction tend to water down and minimize uh, the fact that these uh, promises are so important. In some of the reunion negotiations, uh, and those tapes are available, uh, they, they've been advertised, uh, meetings in the East, I think, over a period of three or four years. Uh, one of the, it was very impressive, I think it was the young people's group in, in Richmond that, that uh, acquired these tapes and listened to them as part of their uh, classwork. And a question was posed in these uh, negotiations uh, from some of the unamended brothers attending that meeting to the others. Do you consider the Abrahamic promises to be an elementary or basic first principle portion of the gospel or a necessary element in our statement of faith. And I'll tell you, on that tape, the silence was definite. There, there, there was no decision. There was no answer. No, no quick affirmation. Now that tells me something. When, when somebody asks me a question regarding the vitals of the gospel, no matter what portion, whether we're talking Abrahamic covenant, or whether we're talking the unity of God, or whether we're talking the virgin birth of Jesus, or the coming kingdom, or the literality of Jerusalem, or what have you. But when I say to you, is the Abrahamic covenant a necessity or a vital part of this whole picture, and you don't know, I say there's something wrong. I have uh, quite a few papers, which I guess we, many of us wish we don't have, in, in the uh, literature and correspondence and all that has taken place in the last uh, ten years on this thing, uh, one brother has written to the editor of the Christadelphian and has shown him, which you can't see too well, how that in 1895 the Christadelphian magazine was dedicated wholly to the hope of Israel as arising out of the covenants made by God with Abraham and David and renewed and promised to the prophet. The 1913, to where it is the Christadelphian, a monthly magazine dedicated wholly to the hope of Israel, so the promises are not mentioned, down to 1971, of where we have the Christadelphian magazine, period. Now, the brother goes on to say, it's all right to change the format of your cover. It's really not the cover that's so important. It's what's inside. It's what, we're, what we have to say in substance. 
And among the things that he raises his questions about is, and I quote a paragraph, the latest instance, and he has quoted several others, occurs in the February issue 1975 in an article entitled A New Look at the Abrahamic Covenant we have set down an essay with which and in parentheses with the greatest respect I am very grieved this article while containing nothing erroneous fails completely to tie the Abrahamic Covenant into the hope of Israel and the gospel of the kingdom of God the essay would be eminently suitable for any current Protestant journal, but I am certain that the editor of the Herald of the Kingdom would have found it inadequate for publication. Of course, he refers to Brother Thomas in the uh, early uh, 1800s. Pursuant to that uh, writing, one of the brothers working with this uh, problem has this to say on the Abrahamic covenant. It says, the covenant with Abraham is considered, and he is outlining, by the way, I, I have to preface this remark, uh, as what he has determined after negotiating and meeting and uh, uh, analyzing some of the views of the uh, amended viewpoint. So here is his analysis of the amended viewpoint. He says, this is how they view the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant with Abraham is considered as an interesting incident in God's dealings with the patriarchs. The promised seed Christ was to be the instrument through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. This promise pointed forward to the atonement. God was pleased to reveal to Abraham that this work would be accomplished through an actual descendant of his. This preview of God's plan to Abraham is viewed to be on a par with God's promise to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood of waters or on a par with his promise to Ishmael that of him God would also make a great nation. Now his point, if I can paraphrase somewhat, is that this is an interesting incident in the whole scheme of things. That this is not the superstructure or the greatest facet of the teaching of God throughout the Old Testament and confirming in Christ the New Testament aspect of the gospel as a whole. Uh, there are so many things in this paper that uh, bear on this, I find it hard to read the proper excerpts. But he goes on to say, what is the root cause of the difference between us? The root cause of the difference, you might give one answer, and I might speculate another, and a person over here might speculate another. This is one of the brothers serving in that capacity to analyze it. says, the root cause of the difference is an understanding of the importance, function, purpose, and place of the Abrahamic covenant in the salvation of mankind. Search and see, and you will find that modern amended Christadelphian writers and intellectuals have worked out a scheme of salvation in which the Abrahamic covenant is not necessary. Salvation can be discussed with the omission of reference to the Abrahamic covenant, exactly the same as it can with the omission of the Noachic covenant. 
The one has no more significance as far as salvation goes as the other. Lest it appear that the above is a distorted view, it is now necessary to briefly cite some examples. In a series of 13 articles printed in the Christadelphian Magazine in 1963-64, a brother wrote on the theme, I believe a personal confession of faith. This is 13 articles. The promises of Abraham and the sure mercies of David were not even mentioned, let alone emphasized, in, in an analysis or a confession of my faith. Now, if any of us feel that we could confess our faith without mentioning and giving a prominent part to the promises made to Abraham, the covenant that God has been spreading out before us in these early chapters of Genesis and the uh, confirmation of these things in Hebrews and, and Romans and Galatians by the Apostle Paul, uh, I think we should do some very serious thinking about it. And we feel that it is our duty, not in the sense of being critical of what is wrong, but when we come to a point of, of finding a right or a wrong, uh, I can't see but one thing as the uh, Old Testament prophets say, and that is to cry aloud and spare not. If we say, go ahead, believe anything you want to, we're not talking of this Abrahamic doctrine, but doctrine, our walk as a whole, uh, what are we asking for? I have a paper here that is, I didn't bring it with this, uh, uh, with any intention of showing it in this class. It has to do with a, another preparation we had made. But it just shows us some of the, uh, uh, some of the departures. And these are just ones that, that uh, have come to mind that we see. Now, I'm not saying I could have corrected or, or prevented or cured these things, but I do have a question. How many more are we going to add to the list? How long is this list going to be before the Lord comes and, and, and maybe finds, as the scriptures say, very few holding to the faith of the apostles or to the faith of Abraham? So, uh, again, my urging is that let us examine and let us hold fast to what is taught and let that teaching uh, be supplemented by good works and faithful conduct in every one of us because just to say that I have intellectually got this thing figured out and I think I have it on a little uh, more explainable basis than you have doesn't qualify me uh, much better than I can see than it does you. But if it's inspirational to me and if it gives me a motivation to go forward and, and the lying behind the negation of all of these things is the fact that our whole dedication is to honor God. It's not to say that I figured out number six or seven or eight and that, that by some intellectual process I have made an attainment. But when we say God has done something wrong, we dishonor him. We, we don't recognize his supremacy and the wisdom and justice and uh, accuracy with which he works. Now, with those remarks, I'm going to return to the uh, 25th of Genesis and picking up in our account, and we're, we're going to be able to finish our remarks. We have, we're ahead of ourselves, actually, in this last class, which is somewhat the way we planned it. But we, our final 
remarks actually involve the death of Abraham, which again is just a, a historical uh, recording. Uh, we have commented earlier because the first few verses of this chapter involve the uh, marriage of Abraham to Keturah. I, I don't have again any speculated uh, point of time as to when he did marry Keturah, but my guess is that it is not at this old age period. It, it uh, could well have been, uh, as we said earlier, prior to the birth of Ishmael. It could have been between the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, I really don't know. Uh, perhaps the answer that Paul, or the evidence that Paul gives us in Romans 4.19 gives us a little bit of thought on the matter. He, Abraham, considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old. In other words, the, the uh, inference there is that normally a person a hundred years old would consider their body dead. But Abraham, uh, prior to the birth of Isaac, uh, was an uh, extra amount of faith, we might say, uh, as the apostle gives it to us, uh, considered his body not dead. So again, if he's up in the range of 147 years old at this time in Genesis 25, uh, it, it does not seem likely that he would take a new wife and raise a new family as is recorded here. So this is probably a parenthetical uh, description. In fact, one writer has suggested this paraphrase of the first verse of this chapter. Then again, Abraham had added and had taken, this is stressing the past tense, had taken a wife whose name was Keturah. Abraham died, as perhaps all of us know, in a good old age, an old man as he was described, being 175 years old. The last 35 years of his life are not given in any detail to us. We know that he lived at Beersheba and uh, resided there, and perhaps Isaac and Rebekah, I believe, were living with him or in the same community, uh, close community, I think. Uh, Abraham was 160 years old when Esau and Jacob were born. So it's somewhat interesting when we overlap the ages of these different men, even, even the early years of Abraham, when they catch uh, Shem in there, which I had no comment on. Uh, but we have Esau and Jacob born, and they overlapped the life of uh, Abraham by 15 years. So Abraham had the pleasure, if you will, of seeing Esau and Jacob uh, grow up or mature the first 15 years uh, of their life. And the record states that he was gathered to his people and his sons Isaac and Ishmael assisted in burying him in the cave of Machpelah which he had purchased from uh, the Hittites and uh, in, in which he had buried Sarah some years uh, earlier. So at this point of time we have Sarah and Abraham buried in the cave of Machpelah and of course down the stream of time uh, Isaac and Jacob will later be buried in this uh, burying place. Now the life of the man Abraham was wrapped up in one thing, the hope of things to come. We do not measure his greatness and his accumulated holdings of cattle, of silver, of gold, of servants, and such material things. These are merely embellishments which distinguish his journey through life from some others 
such as you or me. Whether he owned any land other than the cave of Machpelah, I don't know, and it's unimportant at this time. He did have other land, we know it, at one time. Uh, but we read from the New, New Testament that uh, in God not having fulfilled the promises and the teaching there that Abraham died not having received the promises, uh, that, that it was very likely that there was very little possession of land on his part, if any. But what is important is that he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The details and events of his life are not important from a standpoint of statistical or chronological or historical point of view, aside from the promises and the hope of things to come. It is the faith of Abraham, the linking of him with promises formulated in Eden and extending to Christ and beyond that marks him as being worthy of our note. It is not the faith of an individual which we admire unless we see in that faith the eternal working to the glorification of deity. We do not admire that faith of Abraham in any sense as being real unless we sympathize with it or believe it or participate in it or share it or rejoice in it or hope for its instant fulfillment. We are all aware of the promises being repeated to Isaac and then later in the 28th of Genesis to Jacob. Hebrews 11:9, as we referred to earlier, describes Isaac and Jacob as being heirs with Abraham of the same promise. Again, if this should be of any problem to us, and I'm sure it's not. The continuity and the vitality of the covenant made to Abraham can be traced down to Paul's time in the New Testament. This would indicate that it was a matter of hope with all of God's people in the intervening ages, that it was very much alive in Paul's day, and by implication and scriptural comparison, it is very much alive in our day. Some 300 years after giving the promise to Abraham, we read these words in Exodus 2.24. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When we recognize that all three of these men had been dead a number of years. The inference was that God had matters dealing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were currently on his mind and a matter of future fulfillment uh, in his mind. In the 20th chapter of Luke, verse 37, we have uh, a New Testament confirmation of the inferred resurrection of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God intended to raise these patriarchs from the dead, bestow upon them eternal life, and the land granted to them by hope. 
After leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, Moses went up into Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah and viewed the land over in the Gilead to Dan area, northward and westward to the sea, and other distinct areas mentioned in Deuteronomy 34, the first three verses. And God said to Moses just prior to his death, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. So again, we have sort of the geographics of the thing very plainly taught to us some uh, 300 years or so down the line. In the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, reference is also made to God being conscious of his promises to the fathers. Second Kings 13.23, And the Lord was gracious unto them, and had compassion on them, and had respect unto them, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the fifth century before Christ, at the time of Nehemiah, the same promise was alive in the hearts of faithful Israelites, and certainly in the mind of God. Nehemiah 9, 7, and 8, Thou art the Lord the God, who did choose Abraham, and brought him forth out of the earth of the Chaldees, and gave us him the name of Abraham, and found us his heart faithful before thee, and made us a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hath performed thy words. Now the word perform there means establish or confirm. It doesn't mean perform in the sense that he has given him the land. For thou art righteous. Sort of detouring from our notes here just a little bit, there is a verse that we had intended to bring up. I believe it's in Joshua 21, which is a source of uh, problem to us, uh, to that man who tells us, well, these Abrahamic promises are very nice, uh, but they've already been fulfilled. So I don't want you to tell me about them as far as Christ coming again and having anything to do with the Abrahamic promises because they're all past history. Because it says in Joshua 21:43, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. So we have a little explaining to do here uh, to somebody who insists that the promises to Abraham uh, have been fulfilled. One of the reasons we went into such detail of the seven or more facets or, or uh, sections of the promises, uh, one, we have the everlasting or perpetuity angle of these promises. And of course, if, if in Joshua's time, uh, we, do we, ha we could ask the question, do we have anything eternal established there? Have the Jews uh, or the people of Israel been there everlastingly? Well, I think all of us would recognize there's an absence of that from a natural historical viewpoint. Has there been immortality displayed to us? Have we seen anything of this kind fulfilled, such as the Abrahamic promises give to us? Well, of course, no. Uh, we do recognize that under the leadership of Joshua that the tribes of Israel did go into the land. They did uh, remove the seven Canaanitish nations, and they possessed for a short time uh, the land that God had promised to them. But this was merely a preliminary or a typical thing 
and it wasn't too long until they were either disbanded or spread around and the possession that they had of that land was short-lived. In the prophecy that Zacharias prophesied after the birth of John the Baptist, there's testimony that the Abrahamic covenant was still a matter of hope. So we're moving down now uh, quite a few years uh, to the time of the birth of John the Baptist. And in Luke 1, 68-73, we read these words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. The of this thing is unmistakable, that if, uh, regardless of how wayfaring the nation of Israel was during this uh, thousands of years, thousand and a half, uh, nevertheless, by some uh, preservation activity on the part of God, by his prophets, by his divine intervention, in whatever way uh, he kept it alive, he passed it from one generation to another, but it was very evident in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Here we have uh, Zacharias prior to the birth of his uh, son John the Baptist, uh, saying in some explicit detail that there is a holy covenant. It, it involved an oath that Abraham was involved and that, that there's a lot of substance here that's still alive and a matter of present-day hope at that time. One of the most substantive arguments for the case of the existence of the Abrahamic covenant is that remarkable address of Paul to the Galatians third chapter. You recall in the eighth verse of that chapter, and, and uh, I certainly hope that this is a matter of uh, constant presentation in our young people's classes from age zero, I guess we could say up, that God preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So the gospel is not, as some of the moderns say, a matter of New Testament philosophy. The gospel is the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ and involving, if we can be allowed this uh, liberty, the Abrahamic promises. They which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. We read in verse 7 of Galatians 3. They which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Are we children of Abraham? Do we have that faith of Abraham? And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, as he said in Genesis 22:17, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Have these nations been blessed? Is that, has that time of blessing come yet? Or are they a matter of constant and future hope? That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's verse 14. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not 
and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. So we can't detour around Christ if we're thinking in terms of anything natural, as the Ishmaelites today do. They say, we be the seed of Abraham. Uh, there's no mention of a Messiah or a Savior aspect to these promises. But the seed of Abraham unmistakably is identified by the Apostle Paul as Christ. Not some plural seed, he tells us, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now the plurality of the seed of Christ is brought out to us in the latter verses of this third chapter of Galatians, which tells us, if ye be Christ, male or female, bond or free, Jew or Greek, whoever you are, if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. This may go back to the statement we originally made about the Abrahamic promises being the most peculiar or singularly characteristic thing of the Christadelphian belief. If we said to the so-called, quote, Christian that we might meet in the street today, are you a seed of Abraham, or what have you to do with the Abrahamic promises, uh, we all fairly well recognize we would get a blank stare or some answer of uh, nothing. And maybe in our own cases we need to be a little more affirmative or a little more thinking in this area that to recognize, not that we're placing Abraham on a par with Christ uh, in any sense like this, but that it is impossible, impossible to be in Christ or to be a believer or to be in covenant relationship or to be in any association with Christ, to be in the camp of Christ without being in the seed of Abraham. So one is inextricably linked with the other. So we can't say, well, I'm in Christ and I'll have a little bit of Abraham if I choose or I'll give him some kind of place down the line here. But he is so integrated, integrated with this uh, point of being in Christ. Our whole hope is tied up in the promises made to Abraham and Christ ratifying, making valid, bringing into effect giving future hope to those promises that we think, if we think any other way, we're, we're going in the wrong direction. It would appear from the emphasis that is placed upon the promises made to the fathers and from the centralization of those promises in Christ that we should be prolific in our proclamation of the importance and the necessity of the Abrahamic covenant. Will God perform? Is he still mindful of that oath? Is he the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as he was 3,500 years ago? We took the time to uh, rough out a little chart. And again, one thing we have learned that if, you, if we come again with any of these uh, papers to bring a couple of blanks to draw on, uh, this is our drawing here at the bottom. We know that the Abrahamic promises are spoken of as the everlasting promises. And again, in, in uh, time, we, we start with Eden. Because the Abrahamic promises are not a contradiction of what God had planned in Eden when he spoke of the seed of the woman as being a remedy for man's problems. But starting down from Eden, 
And we may have overemphasized it. We've only done it because of the presentation in this class, but we, we mentioned the seven promises. And as we said at the outset, there may be eight or nine uh, reiterations or, or building up of the uh, various facets of the promises to Abraham. But viewed from the point of mankind, and this is outside sort of the speculation of what other revelation or intervention God may have given, and I happen to be one of the opinion that God supported his word all through Old Testament times with whatever revelation and angelic visitation was necessary. We don't have the record of every visitation that he made with every prophet and every man and every occasion. But as we see it, this thing, in our day at least, has opened up wider, wider, wider. And from Eden, uh, and we skipped Noah and some of the other points that we could have put in there, but we have the Abrahamic aspect added to God's everlasting covenant, which started in Eden. And we have the continuity through Isaac, Jacob, and David. And the reason we dotted our lines there when we got to Christ was that these promises or this covenant was a matter of contingency up until that time. If the sacrifice of Christ had not happened, that promise as it matured over to that dotted line would have fallen and been of no effect. But the sacrifice of Christ, we read, ratified, made effective, validated, brought into force the promises that God was working on, not entirely from the point of Abraham's time, but back from the time of the Garden of Eden, when God saw and mercifully provided uh, for the remedy of man's condition. So when we think of the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises, or whatever terminology, we've, we've interchanged them and, and thrown them, I guess, all over the place to some extent. We hope that the presentation we have given here on it will have been uh, helpful and uh, instructional, inspirational uh, to all of us. Thank you for your kind attention.